Welcome to Spotlights. This is the podcast for the Yale Forum on Religion and Ecology. And each week we feature somebody working in or around the intersection of religion and ecology. And this week I'm really happy to welcome onto the show Andreas Carolus. Andreas, welcome. Thank you, Sam. Appreciate being here. I have a book here, Climate Courage. This is really a remarkable book. Uh, I found it recently. Uh, the full title, Climate Courage, How Tackling Climate Change Can Build Community, Transform the Economy, and Bridge the Political Divide in America. That's a tall order. And then reading the book, I got a crazy sense of optimism from it. Instead of this very skeptical initially, I'm like, this title, I don't know, can anything really do all of this? And then the tone, uh, the positivity, a sense of possibility without being like naively optimistic at all. Uh, so I really like the tone of the book and uh, and that you got Catherine Hayo to write the forward. She's another person who really speaks with that kind of like, hey, we can do this. Don't let the challenges bring you down. There's a lot more possibility and opportunity than we think. Uh, so I want to talk to you a little bit about the overall message of the book. What are you trying to convey with this whole project? Yeah, thanks, Sam. Uh, what I'm really trying to convey is that, look, I mean, if we you know, take a look at the data, we realize that climate change is uh, a very, very serious situation. It's very scary. And we don't have a lot of time to act to to get it right. Um, as Bill McKibben points out, it's a time test, right? Like we don't have forever. We, we The window is closing upon the time that we can act. And so we have to think strategically around how do we message about the issue how do we mobilize people? How do we motivate people? How do we inspire people to take action quickly? Because what I've seen in the climate movement for many years is a lot of doom and gloom, a lot of uh, you know scary messages, not overly scary because the data is that scary, right? <laughs> like it yeah. is, it is, it is a crisis, right? And I and, and and I don't mean to downplay that at all, but when we look at the crisis and we look at the psychology, the research around how do human beings relate to something that's scary like this, um, we tend to uh, narrow our focus and we tend to uh, turn away from it, right? We can't really sit with a negative emotion for too long before we want to pivot. Um, and so when we ask ourselves the question, how can we mobilize society to move as quickly as possible, what the research points to is that we have to be solutions oriented and we have to be focused on the positive momentum that we already have. If people think that we have momentum already uh, going for us in our direction uh, towards solutions, then we're much more likely to get involved, to put our back into it and say, yeah, we got this, you know, we can do it. Um, whereas if all we see is the negative data oh, you know, the storms are getting bigger, the ice caps are melting faster, it's worse and worse, then we tend to shut down, right? And we can't act. And so that's that's really, I think, the, the, the point of the book. Um, you know, I want uh, to move away. And, and I think the other interesting thing is that, and I, and I wrote this before the pandemic, but given the pandemic and, and given the state of society, especially in America, we are so ripe for change. We are so ripe for transformation in so many ways, right? And to, to make us, to make a more, uh, 
a way of life that's more fulfilling, that's more just, uh, that has more opportunity, that's more uplifting, that's more cohesive. And so what better way to transform um, all of the sort of uh, sort of systems in the economy uh, and what more mobilizing opportunity than solving the climate crisis. So we have this opportunity to change everything and, uh, and we have to focus on the, the opportunity in front of us and the positive uh, impacts that we can have rather than, oh, we need to avoid X, Y, Z and, you know, and sort of the demoralizing sense that comes with that. That's great. And I see that really reflected in the title that you uh, talk about courage. So much uh, discussion of climate ethics is a lot of hope talk mm. and that, you know, hope has its place, not trying to be mad about hope, but there's something about hope that's not really action oriented, right? Where courage is, you know, the virtue for acting in the face of fear, kind of yes. meeting fear with some fearless resolve. Mm-hmm. So I'm wondering how uh, how courage as this kind of you know, mobilizing force figures into what you're writing about. Yeah, absolutely. And actually, you know, I quote uh, Kate Marvel in the book, who's a NASA scientist, and she says, uh, you know, we need courage, not hope, uh, to fight climate change. And you know, I uh, actually came up with the title um, when I was reading a number of years ago, reading Brene's Brene Brown's book, uh, Daring Greatly. Mm-hmm. And she talks so much about courage, um, you know, and this sense of vulnerability and, and the, the, the importance of leaning into that and saying, yes, we, we, we are vulnerable, um, but we have to find our courage in order to uh, persevere. And, uh, and I think that's really, to me, what, what's needed in the climate movement and, and hope. Um, and again, I, you know, obviously we all think generally positively about the word hope and the feelings that evolve. And we do need hope. We do need a hopeful uh, sort of, you know, look, looking forward um, in order to, to kind of keep going. But, um, but hope in a certain way can be passive, right? Mm-hmm. Oh, well, I, I hope, you know, the president takes care of this. I hope, you know, the United Nations takes care of this. Whereas courage is to say, no, I am going to play a role. I am not going to wait for anybody else. I am going to do what I can in my community with my peers, and we're going to make something happen. And I think that's an important shift that we need to make collectively. Yeah. And it comes, it comes across on every page. There's just that sense of like, okay, let's do this. And uh, just really good energy instead of just listing all the facts that say how difficult this is going to be, you're saying, yeah, but look at what we're already accomplishing. Look how many opportunities there are to build on that progress. Absolutely. And then, of course, when people think about things like hope and courage and like our sources for moral guidance, a moral compass in these times, uh, one of the things that they're going to look at is religion. And of course, a lot of people, when they think about religion and climate change, are like, oh, no, don't bring religion into this. Isn't that a source of climate denial for some people or religion so otherworldly that people don't care about the earth? Uh, But in what you're looking at, you found a really positive role for religion for this climate courage. Absolutely. And and it's been a really bright spot in the climate movement for me, um, seeing all the incredible work that's been done by faith communities. Um, You know, we... And actually, Catherine Hayhoe's research, uh, you know, really helped me uh, kind of see what was happening here is that actually uh, there are um, certain folks in uh, that, that, that will use their religion um, as a way of really aligning with their political views. 
and saying, uh, so for example, one of the things that, that Catherine points out that I, I mentioned in the book is that if you look at a list of the religions in America and where they rank in terms of their belief on climate change, um, Catholics of Hispanic descent are the number one uh, most concerned. And that makes sense because the Pope came out with the encyclical on climate change, which I write about in the book, uh, his encyclical on climate change and, and injustice. And, um, and it makes sense, you know, here's the Pope, this is a big issue. It's, you know, we've, there's an encyclical about it. We've got to take this seriously. And, and you go through all the religions and all the way on the bottom are Catholics uh, or white Catholics, white Catholics, same religion, same good book, same Pope, right? One, no, first and last, right? And, and so you, and so at that point you realize that there is a lot of politics involved in religion. There is a lot of, um, you know, people uh, sort of maybe dismissing uh, or, or interpreting their faith in a certain way based on their political views. And so, but, but, but what we, when you look at religions, uh, you see across the board that there is almost in, in all the wisdom traditions, there is some uh, connection to the earth. There's some connection to um, having harmony with nature. There is some connection uh, of stewardship, right? This sense of, of we have to sort of, um, sort of take care of the garden. Um, and so, uh, and, and you actually, and one of the things I point to in the book is that there are a number of really interesting uh, movements happening. So I talk about interfaith power and light, um, you know, and, and their ability, uh, you know, they've brought together, you know, uh, tens of thousands of congregations around the country of all different faiths uh, to, to take action on climate change. Um, you have Green the Church, uh, which is working with African-American churches around the country. Uh, you have uh, Green Muslims, uh, which is in Wisconsin, uh, working with uh, Islamic uh, faith uh, groups. And so, um, you, you know, you really and also you also see um, evangelical groups, right? You have uh, uh, a number of evangelical groups that have um, uh, taken a strong stance on climate change. And I think we should all be uh, supporting that and embracing that and saying, yes, uh, this is uh, uh, this is a moral question, and and we are uh, at a time where we need faith communities to step up. Uh, the same way, you know, during uh, the civil rights movement, right? You know, Martin Luther King, obviously, um, you know, letter uh, from a Birmingham jail was was speaking to uh, people of clergy and saying, "I need uh, people of faith to step up and recognize the urgency of the moment." And uh, and I think that we're seeing that happening in. Uh, the climate movement, and we need more of it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think the analogy with the civil rights movement is a really strong one. And then, you know, part of the issue is that there's kind of like another force in religion that isn't being paid attention to that much. And it's the way in which people have a kind of religious or spiritual connection to like consumerism or capitalism. And people forget, like, if we're wanting to complain about the religions that are really holding us back, it might be that people have something like a religious level of devotion to overconsumption, right? In the way that like Black Friday is like a national holiday, right? <laughs> um, and so I really appreciate that you bring up the kind of psycho-spiritual dynamics of that uh, in the book as well. So what did you kind of find looking at the, not just the economic side of consumption and capitalism, but this kind of psychological and spiritual side as well? Yeah, this is uh, a topic that in my opinion is really at the crux of the climate crisis. Um, you know, I open up a chapter with a quote from Gus Speth, uh, former uh, dean uh, at the Yale uh, School of Forestry. And 
and he basically says, um, you know, I'm paraphrasing, but he basically says, uh, if people were really happy in the current uh, sort of consumptive world that we have, then it would be hard to make a change. It would be hard to change the way things are. But if what we have is a spiritual hunger in the age of plenty, right, then you actually have a real opportunity for change. And I think that's so poignant. I think that we as a society um, are unhappy. We're unhappy. And, and and, And there are plenty of signs. You can look at, you know, across the board, we have, um, in fact, the the unhappiness levels are so high that we now have an entire field of study called diseases of despair, right? So you have uh, depression, suicide, uh, addiction, right? Um, Use of antidepressants, all these things are, are, you know, and and of course it's tied to um, the, uh, the highest rates of income inequality in, in over a hundred years. Right. So, so, and, and of course the political divide is also a representation of that, right. We're more divided now than ever. All of these things um, are tied in some ways, not exclusively, but in some ways to our isolation, our increasing consumption of media um, and sort of being kind of stuck inside uh, our own worlds, um, you know, kind of stuck in front of a screen, um, which of course is even more so now that we're all at home during the pandemic. Um, and so what we're, what we're lacking are the things that give us more, you know, what the psychology shows is that what actually makes us happy is connection to other people, community, loving relationships, uh, feeling um, that we have a purpose, feeling that we're giving back, um, uh, and, and, and sort of uh, being of service and, and less so much concerned about myself and my things and my money. Um, and, and so I think we need a real shift, you know, again, you know, Martin Luther King, um, you know, we need to shift from a person oriented, we need to shift from a thing oriented society to a person oriented society. Um, and so, and so that to me is, is profound because when it comes to climate, if, if we, if we think about the, what's causing climate change, it's, humanity using up the resources that we have on this planet at an accelerating rate and producing this, you know, sort of catastrophe in its wake. And that drive for consuming more is really a spiritual hunger that we're trying to fill, right? But it can never be filled with the material consumerism. It can never be filled. Um, And so we could have all the planet's you know, uh, a sort of infinity, right? Um, that we're consuming the resources of and we'll never feel happy. And so we actually need to shift uh, sort of our perspectives. And so what I, what I, what I, I kind of bucket it in, in, in a chapter um, called uh, simplicity, uh, a sort of gratitude, simplicity and service, because I think these are the, the, you know, and I tie a number of ideas into that, but I think if we as Americans um, we in the Western world can focus more on being grateful for the incredible quality of life that we have. And we simplify our life, focusing more of our attention on our relationships, on experiences, on uh, self-care and um, our spiritual practice or our mindful practice or prayer, whatever that might be, um, our creative pursuits. Um, and then uh and then choosing to give back, right? Be of service to others. 
that the psychological research shows these are the things that are going to make us happier, right? These are the things that are going to make us feel more fulfilled and thus, um, you know, sort of damper our need for ever more consumption. Yeah, simplicity is so, so underrated. And it's like, but the opposite of a simple life would be a complicated life. Why would anybody be like, you know what I want? Just a more complicated life. Like, of course not. And then we just feel ourselves pushed and pulled around toward that. And to just remind people, you know, studies suggest simplicity might make you happy and giving makes people happy service, right? Yes. Uh, one of the things that really excited me about this book, especially because I was, I was looking for a text to use for a climate ethics class that includes a lot of community engagement. And I also want some religious perspectives. I want to talk about virtues like simplicity and courage yeah. and uh, saw you pulling all of that together here. Uh, so really just a pleasure to read, especially because I, I think I read too much other stuff on climate change and it is often just uh, the doom and gloom mm-hmm. and people just trying to one up each other about how uh, desperate the situation can appear. Yeah. But, you know, one of the other things I'm always curious about talking with people who are engaging in a topic that's that's this serious and just of this magnitude yeah. is how did you get into it? Like what happened in your life where you thought, you know what, I'm going to try and tackle kind of the biggest problem of our day. Mm-hmm. How did, how did you start on that path? That's a really good question. Um, it's, it's, it, you know, it kind of depends how far back you want to go. Uh, you know, when I was a kid, uh, you know, my mom was, uh, you know, an avid environmentalist, you know, was, was sort of a member of, you know, all the environmental groups and, uh, and, and kind of instilled that in us in a young, at a young age. Um, people around my age might remember a, uh, a delightful uh, cartoon that came out when we were kids called Fern Gully, um, which was a, a, you know, really, a, I mean, I, w- I think I was about eight when the movie came out. And it was a real strong call to action. And it really planted in my mind this seed of we need to protect the environment. Um, and uh, but but really, you know, kind of fast forward when I went to college, um, uh, I started school in 2001 and uh, first week of school, uh, first of all, it was 9-11, um, which, uh, you know, completely transformed uh, my world and, and uh, my view of the world and, and, and brought, you know, my awareness to, you know, this kind of larger global uh, sort of uh, political context that I hadn't really been aware of um, as much. And, uh, and, and during that first week of school, and we were thinking about, um, you know, all these big things, uh, I had an economics professor who said the two largest uh, problems facing the world are the global wealth uh, inequality and global climate change. And um, it just, it just hit me very uh, sort of squarely. And I, uh, and I kind of took it, took it to heart and um, having been already sort of interested in the environment. And I started to you know, read more about it. And uh, actually, I, I read a book uh, by uh, an environmentalist who I admire very much named Lester Brown. Um, and he wrote a book uh, called Eco Economy. And, uh, and in that, you know, he very much pointed out here is here's the problem. And, and here's how unsustainable things are. But here are the solutions. Here's renewable energy technology. Here's how we can move towards a more sustainable economy. And as an economics student, I was really excited about that. And so I started um, focusing all my economics research on uh, uh, mostly clean energy. Um, I went, uh, my family's of Greek descent. And so I, uh, I studied abroad in Athens for a semester in college. And, uh, and what I noticed in Athens is that 
every house, every apartment building has solar hot water heaters on the roof. Everyone, like it's almost like you, it'd be odd to see one without it. And, uh, and it just totally hit me. I was, I was like, I've never seen this in the States. This is such a brilliant technology. Why don't we have more solar in the United States? And that really just got me on a question that, you know, has driven my career ever since. And then part of that is you're also uh, the director of Revolve. Uh, so I'd love to hear a little bit about this because it's just one of the really inspiring activities you do. It fits really well with the book because you get this sense of like, well, it's a nice book, but what are you doing to actually make this vision happen? And you're like, oh, I'm I'm doing stuff. Yeah, no, t- <laughs> thanks. Um, you know, uh, it's, it's a funny story. I was... Um, I had gone to see a, a, a film w- uh, with a friend that came out, I think it was like 2009. It was called, um, uh, it was called the age of stupid and it, it, it was a climate documentary and it was, it was really quite impactful. And at the end, like so many climate documentaries, it says, you know, here's this really, really scary thing that's happening. And here's a list of things you can do, you know, uh, you know, use a reusable bag and uh, drive less and, you know, ride your bike more. And I said, are you kidding me? Right. Like, you know, you like we're all terrified by what we just watched, and so I I, I felt this feeling, and, and this was also at the time when, uh, you know, President Obama had ran on and, and said that he was going to you know address climate change, and we saw that the cap and trade bill uh, that passed Congress was was uh, you know killed in the Senate. Um, in 2009, and then the Copenhagen Accords uh, basically fell flat, um, you know, in, 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 in that time. And so I felt that there was this large grassroots movement of climate change activists uh, sort of coming, coming to life, and that we needed a more tangible and direct way of taking action that would result in, in, that would result in impact. And so I started to think about what that would look like, and I came up with the idea for Revolve, which is basically um, an opportunity for people, volunteers, and anybody listening can volunteer as a solar ambassador, where we basically train folks to, uh, with the tools to go into their community and identify local nonprofits and talk to them and help guide them through the process of going solar. And then Revolve, uh, through our innovative uh, Revolving Fund uh, finance model, uh, what we call the Solar Seed Fund, we finance the solar energy projects for these nonprofits. Um, And then each time these nonprofits go solar, whether it's a a church or a homeless shelter or a food bank or a school, um, not only are they saving money so that they can do more of the good work that they're already doing, right? Like they can put more into their, uh, into their mission. uh, But we also get to tell a story. We get to point out here is uh, the homeless shelter that's gone solar uh, and now um, they're giving back to the community. And, and who can we touch with that story? Who can we uh, get excited about clean energy through that? Um, and so, you know, we're happy to have deployed solar projects in 13 states. Um, you know, we've served communities uh, that, that benefit thousands of people. And, um, and the idea is that, you know, solar is actually contagious, right? This is a, you know, one of the things I talk about in the book. Um, when someone sees uh, solar, uh, on their neighbor's roof, they're more likely to go solar. And if they go solar, their neighbor is even more likely to go solar. And this has been demonstrated across the country. So, so at the community level, we actually have a lot more impact than we realize. And that's, you know, the idea behind Revolve and, and really the main message in the book is that um, 
while we've often been told the only ways to solve the climate crisis are either at the individual level um, by reducing our own footprint or you know, trying to lobby for action at the policy level, um, which may be out of reach, both are important, don't get me wrong, but the, the way that we can feel the most empowered is by acting with our neighbors in our communities, the community level, what are projects that we can take on uh, that can have a direct impact in our community and that, um, that and, and importantly, that we can work with other people on doing, right? Because we need to know that we're not alone. Um, and, and those are some of the tools that, uh, that yeah, as a Revolve Solar Ambassador, you know, folks can take on projects. Um, and then also in the book, um, uh, on the website, climatecourage.us, we've created um, these climate courage circles where people who read the book and are inspired can, can start a circle and you can start talking with your neighbors about what can we do in our community uh, to make a difference. That's great. Yeah. And I got to really recommend to, to anybody checking this out to look at climate courage, look at revolve, because these are great ways to get involved. And you're absolutely right. There's something very disempowering about just always emphasizing we need systemic change or just change as an individual. Like, well, I can do that, but it's not really scaling up to anything serious. Right. Well, there's this really nice middle ground that people aren't talking about enough community, right? right? And, 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 and the truth is like, we do need systemic change, right? And it's, but a question of, it's, it's a strategy question. How do we get systemic change? Well, if you look at the community level, and this is what the whole book is about, right? It's, it's one story after another of community members that came together, that took action, that made a change, and that those changes are actually scalable. Because when you, for example, one of the, one of the, the, the stories I talk about is uh, the Sierra Club has a campaign called Ready for 100. And they have trained volunteers around the country to go into their community and convince uh, the local uh, elected officials uh, in their city, county, uh, state to uh, commit to 100% renewable energy. And they've been so successful in the last two to three years that now uh, one third of Americans live in a place that is at some point committed to 100% renewable energy. One third of Americans, right? You didn't need federal policy to get there. You just needed community volunteers taking that action. And so when you have enough community uh, momentum going and you see the success stories, those will spread because the next community will want to do it. And the next community, when you have enough communities doing it, enough cities and enough states, well, then federal legislation is you know, uh, uh, the next result, right? That'll come as a result of a ground up movement. Yeah, right. And the individual change will happen while you're engaging with your community. So yeah, exactly. it's this, instead of worrying about, is it bottom up? Is it top down? We're like, well, what about middle out, right? That's right. That's yeah, right. No, I like that so much. And uh, yeah, the the along with solar being contagious, I think your enthusiasm is contagious as well. <laughs> Thanks, um, and, and in person, but also just right on the page. And so it's really really an inspiration to read and uh, and great to have you on. We bet we better stop now or it's going to turn into a whole long thing. So, <laughs> and geez, I've, and I know you've got a lot of other cool stuff lined up, uh, a lot of other online events and stuff. So I'll, I'll plug some of those for, uh, for everybody when I post this. Thank you, Sam. Really, really appreciate it. It's such a pleasure being here. I love uh, the work uh, of this, this program and, uh, and all the work that you're doing. So, so happy to join you. Thank you. Thank you so much, Andreas Carlos. All right. Well, thanks everybody for tuning in. We'll have more stuff for you next week. And in the meantime, be well.